What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined, as always, by Ben Badler. This is episode 39. We're recording this a day earlier than we usually record. It's Wednesday, February 15th. I uh, hope you had a good Valentine's Day yesterday, Ben. But um, hopefully you guys are excited about a podcast coming out a day early. And we're continuing our weekly podcasting streak. I'm feeling pretty good about this, Ben. How are you? I'm good. I'm just getting adjusted to the new bases in MLB did that did that shake your your world Carlos they're adjusting the bases three inches bigger and some people like are freaking out about it I don't know (laughs) I I I, uh I have no takes on the the large bases other than if it if it encourages uh, a more active running game I, I think that's cool I think there are some other rule changes though that the people are more upset about than the base size. Have you seen animosity about about the base sizes? If 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 there's any of that out there in the the interwebs or the Twitter sphere or maybe the Instagram, what do we call Instagram? You're you're on there more than me. I think I think we just call it Instagram. Just Instagram. Hmm. I feel like there's got to be some Zoomer phrase for it. But are you are you surprised that people to hear that people would have backlash? somewhere out there <laughs> against making the bases bigger. I guess one of the bigger, or not the bigger, but one of the things I saw was, did you see the people who just clearly Photoshopped the no. old bases compared to the new ones where they made the new ones look like they were maybe two or three times the size of it? <laughs> and people were responding earnestly like, oh my God. God, I I can't believe MLB would do this. It's like no, they're three inches bigger. So this is it's like not... people falling for the Onion articles, except baseball memes. That's good. Yeah, pretty much. I miss those, but I I really lament the fact that I did because I would have I would have definitely gotten a chuckle out of it. Maybe I need to be on social media more. For everyone saying we should get off of it, it, it sounds like really the opposite is the case. I need to get as much of it as I can. No, I think the the extra inning rule and the position player ones are well. Th- those were at least the new ones this week, right? We knew the bases yeah. were gonna yeah. So in case bigger. you guys missed it, if if you're also not on social media a lot, like apparently I'm not, um, it was announced that there will be new limits on when you can use position players to pitch. Um, the leading team has to be up ten or more runs, and the trailing team has to be down eight or more runs, and then. Um, to it seems like most people's disappointment the runner on second in extra innings is now going to become the norm for the regular season so any extra inning game you're going to pop that runner on second base Um, I mean it's like the international tiebreaker so I'm pretty used to it on the amateur side USA baseball plays with those rules so I've, I've seen it quite a bit obviously baseball fans in general got exposed to it when MLB used those rules in the COVID season there are a lot of takes about it I mean, what do you think? I'll I'll just throw it to you first, Ben, because I'm conflicted on one, and I think the position player pitching rules, I think that's solid. I can can get more into that after you go, but I'm curious what your takes on these two specifically are. And I guess if there are any other – because there are plenty of rule changes that that maybe we've discussed in this podcast and maybe we haven't um, that we've known about for a while now, but I I guess I'll just open up to if there are any other rule changes that, that you have thoughts on here. The limits on position players pitching I think is a good one. I agree. I do like occasionally the novelty of seeing a position player come into pitch. And for most of at least modern baseball history, that's all it was. It was an occasional novelty that you would see 
in an absolute blowout game, and it made it fun. But now the teams are using it outside of of those settings, and they're just trying to conserve arms for later in a series. Um, that that's not great to me. I don't like that. So I I like that they're. They they could have just outright banned it, I suppose. But I actually kind of like that. Hey, all right, we'll still have the occasional novelty of a position player pitching and keep that, you know, rare element of the game still there. But at the same time, saying all right, this rapid increase in position players pitching. This is this is not a good thing yeah. for the product I, overall. I found it embarrassing last year. I think I even mentioned this a couple of times. There, there are a few, there are many instances of position players pitching, and and honestly, when you have someone who's clearly not doesn't know how to pitch, going up and throwing lollipop pitches to big league hitters at the major league level, I, I just found it embarrassing. Like I, I don't think there's any. I mean, I guess people think it's cool to see Albert Pujols go out and get on the mound. I mean, personally, it's kind of funny, I guess, but I don't know why that's, I don't know why people appreciate it that much, to be honest. It's it's almost like so bizarre to see that to your point, it is a bit of a novelty, but I, honestly, I just find it kind of embarrassing when teams have to do that. Like you're, you're getting beat so bad that you're throwing someone out there who clearly is not good at this job and everyone is aware of why you're doing it and you're not trying to be competitive um, and, and maybe it's even more embarrassing if you're down uh, by however many runs and you have a position player on the mound. So I think it's good. I don't think there's any. It's the same argument as as pitchers hitting to me. I think it was embarrassing uh, for a while there towards the end of the um, non-DH era. What do we even call that now? Uh, when pitchers clearly were, were overmatched and never practiced hitting and, and basically they were a black hole in the lineup. I, I find it similar when you have position players on the mound throwing I mean equivalent to people off you could pull people out of the stadium and have them throw similar to some of these position players pitching I don't know I don't think that would be a good rule or would that be better if you, if you could just if you would buy a ticket to a game and be like dude there's a chance that <laughs> Gabe Kapler might bring me in let's uh let's in the eighth inning bananas. I mean, <laughs> if, if, any, if, if you're going for like pure chaos it would be more interesting to see if some random person could get a whiff against an actual big league hitter uh it's clearly more embarrassing but but i do think like literally you could go out there and throw what albert pools threw when he was on the mound like it it's not impressive in the least yeah i'm glad they glad they got rid of that one but the the runner the on second base to start extra innings Mm -hmm. i hate i I I hate that rule (laughs) I, I'm kind of sitting on a fence now, and and I don't know. I think I tend to agree that like I would prefer just normal baseball, and I also am hesitant to to take a strong side on this one because I do think it's very easy for people who are in the baseball industry. And, and although as I say this, I, I think most people in the baseball industry have the opposite opinion. But I'll just carry on this train of thought. Like I, I think it would be very easy as someone in the baseball industry to be on board with this rule. Because we see so many games, uh, and you probably are jaded about extra innings in general, that you think it's probably fine. 
um, to manufacture a situation where those extra inning games end quicker. Um, at the same time, it is a vastly different game when you put a runner on second base. The, the run environment is, is significantly different. How teams approach it is different. Maybe that could be viewed as a positive for this. If, if you're someone who doesn't want to object to it, you do get to see more small ball in these environments. Um, that That element of the game really doesn't exist at the same level that it did in previous eras. So if you appreciate that part of the game, maybe you like it, but I, I can't imagine many purists who like small ball are also going to be on board with putting a runner on second in extra innings. It seems like those are competing beliefs. Um, but but go on about why you don't like this, Ben. Uh, if this was in the postseason or the playoffs, I would be significantly against it. But the fact that it's only regular season... I'm not getting too torn up about it right now, but again, I'll, I'll leave. Um, I'll stay open-minded about saying this is a terrible rule, I guess. So I, I am open to new rule changes and I will say the pitch clock, for example, I, I am fully on board with that. I think people who have not seen the pitch clock in action, myself included until they implement it, that rule in the minor leagues i i was against that at first and i think the majority of fans probably who hear about it and who have never seen it at a game are against it and then once you start going to games where there is a pitch clock you're like oh this is a crisper game you notice it at first and then it quickly fades into the background and becomes the norm and yeah. then you go to a game without a pitch clock and it feels like you're walking through molasses or something. Yeah, it just makes the pace and the flow of the game better. So I like that MLB is trying new things in the minor leagues and experimenting with those rules. And if something works, then yeah, let's let's try that at the upper levels of the minor leagues. Let's maybe try that in, again, the Arizona Fall League or in, in Major League Baseball, ultimately. But we've seen... This rule, this extra innings rule now, both in the minor leagues, uh, you know, above that and in other areas too. And it just, when, when it happens, when you see it in a game, it feels so artificial. It feels so gimmicky. It takes what to that point has probably been a great game because we're talking about a tie game going into extra innings. And it just takes so much of the air right out of the game. Interesting. It, 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 feels, it feels so artificial and it feels so anti-viewer, anti-fan to do it right away when like this is becoming the most exciting part of the game. Now we're heading into extra innings and all of a sudden we're just doing this cheap thing where we're <laughs> putting a guy on second base because... We're, we have this like let's wrap it up feel to the game yeah. rather than well, let's let's keep going. This is a great game. Yeah, and I can see that argument, and I think even part of me agrees with it. The the part of me that wonders if maybe it's actually the opposite is, I think for a lot of casual fans, this could almost add excitement to a game because I think you're right that many games that go to extra innings are very intense, tight, back-and-forth games that are interesting, and especially for, for diehard fans, 
I think there's always going to be excitement about extra innings and, and how teams are able to navigate that and, and what the bullpen is looking like. Like people who are intense fans of baseball are interested in all those little wrinkles. But I think for casual fans, extra innings are, are not inherently that much more exciting. I remember I went to a Nationals Reds game um, with my wife and a few friends who are, I would say, casual sports fans and, and even more casual baseball fans. And the game went to extra innings, and, and we joked about it beforehand because for the first six or seven innings, neither team could score. I would not describe it as a very tight back-and-forth game. It was just one of those games where there wasn't a lot of action. Um, the people who were there who were not into baseball were like counting down the minutes and ready to leave. Uh, and then we kind of joked, oh, imagine if this goes into extra innings. You guys will have a couple more innings to get through. And, of course, it did go to extra innings. Uh, the people who were not like predisposed to liking baseball prior to the game weren't too excited about it. And I do wonder if instead, uh, if there was a runner on second, those people who are more casual fans would then have a reason to maybe get interested in extra innings because the run environment just increased significantly. There's a chance you're about to see some action on the bases. Um, and I think in the past, baseball has been way too conservative in, in how they are adjusting the rules and changing the game to adapt to modern times and to try and draw casual fans in. So I definitely feel like this is going to be a polarizing uh, decision, but, but I, I think I can see some upsides from it. P part of me also is sad that, that this is happening because when I was a kid, I, I was always a, a diehard baseball fan. And I remember one of the first professional games that I went to in person, it did go to extra innings. And I was, I remember being so thrilled that I went to extra innings because I was like, Oh, free baseball, we get even more. So I just think it depends on, on kind of your experience with baseball, what sort of fan you are, what you're looking for at a game. I mean, I think in general, I'm, I'm for rules that are creating more action. This certainly does it to your point. It does it in a very manufactured way, but it's almost like penalty kicks in soccer. I think there are a lot of purists who hate the fact that soccer games end in PKs because it's at that point it's not a soccer game. It's it's kind of this arbitrary exhibition uh, that you're doing. But but for me, as someone who's not a diehard soccer fan by any means, I kind of just watch the World Cup. When PKs happen, I'm pumped because there are going to be some goals that are scoring. It's immediately a very tense situation. And I, and I wonder if this could be sort of similar for baseball. So, so that's my optimistic um, counterpoint to this, Ben. Do you think there's any merit merit to that or no you still just solidly out i think if you're talking about the casual fan if you already have them through nine innings the extra inning rules is not what you're doing to i, I don't know there's there's a sunk cost um that, that goes into it once once you get someone at the ballpark there i imagine a lot of people especially with how the prices have risen in the game you're you're not just going to leave you've paid for it you want to stick it out and see there are probably plenty of people that have hung around a baseball game because they felt obligated to well, then why would you need... I mean, the other thing to me really is this is also seems like the just a terrible time to implement it when if if some of the concern is the length of the game or, again, I don't, I don't really think it's the length of the game. I think it's more just the, the pace and the flow of it. Yeah. But, all right, well, well, we have the pitch clocks coming in this year, so we're going to get better pace, better action, better flow to the game during the first nine innings. So this doesn't seem like the right time to implement it. Yeah. And I mean, 
I get it. Like if if you want to have this rule in place in the Gulf Coast or the Florida Complex League, the Arizona Complex League, you know, the other minor leagues where even a lot of the fans who are at the game don't really care who wins or loses, including probably a lot of the people who are actually in each dugout, frankly. Um, that's that's one thing. I get it. And it's a you know, 140 game season. I get it. And I and I understand some of the spirit behind you know why some of the a lot of the players probably are in favor of it because they're like, hey, we're playing every day for oh, yeah. you know from I, April through September. Like from all the reporting and, and the unanimous vote uh, with the player, I think they have four players on on the panel that, that can vote on this. All of them voted in favor of it. I can imagine every player involved is fully down for it because these yeah. guys probably despise playing extra innings. I, I get it that they just want to go home and wrap it up, and that's exactly how it feels when you see that rule in action in a game, and it just feels so anti-viewer and anti-fan. The only way I could see getting on board with it is if they said, okay, we're going to implement this rule effective in the 12th or the 13th inning right we're saying you play nine innings of baseball it's a tie game we're going into extra innings let's give them let's give each team two three innings maybe so you're guaranteed a full full rounds through the batting order to try to win this game in extra innings and if we're still tied up after that point in the regular season okay then let's put in this runner on second base rule and and try to wrap it up from there but to do it right at the the climax of the game at, at the most exciting point in the game just feels so anti-viewer to me again it just has this let's wrap it up feel <laughs> to it that is just really a, a turnoff for me yeah, do you, do you think this has anything to do with the way teams use bullpen arms at this point? Because it does seem like this also benefits managers and just people making decisions for roster moves on a team because increasingly we have bullpens built for dominance in one-inning stretches. You no longer have a ton of stretch them out relievers in a bullpen guys you can just give this bulk innings work too and i think that's part of the reason you saw as many position players pitching as we did is, is because teams are trying to save their legitimate reliever arms for more leverage innings or, or more games that quote unquote matter do you think that there is a way to alter how teams select for for pitchers or a way to restrict how you're able to build out your team on the pitching front or, or even limit the the amount that you're able to shuffle players up and down from AAA because it, it does seem like just the modern usage of a bullpen and how teams shuffle pitchers from AAA to the majors and back regularly just to kind of get the, the most well-rested guys up and ready to go is a, a significant factor here as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think probably the managers, a lot of them – you know, if they were not managing, probably wouldn't like <laughs> watching baseball with these rules. But since they are managing a team, it is a factor for them. And just it goes back to the what we were talking about before with position players pitching. It's the same way we've seen a rise in position players pitching is they're just 
trying to save their arms for the rest of a series and longer term than that through the rest of the month and the rest of the season. So I, I understand why the managers and a lot of the players would be in favor of this rule. But as a, as a fan who just wants to see exciting baseball, this is this just feels anti-fan to me so you would rather have some sort of rule about how you're able to construct or maneuver bullpen arms instead of this that seems safe to say right like if you're changing the way the game is played and you want to limit the kind of the modern i I don't even know if it's if, if it's you're trying to limit how teams use their bullpen you're trying to basically get the same result in a different way well i don't need to i'm not saying we need to limit goal actually is even the same as what mlbs would be so no, well, my goal is not the same <laughs> as MLB's, and and I don't need to create rules to necessarily limit how teams use their bullpen. It's it's really just in the extra inning rule. I have no I have no use for it, especially in the first few innings of extra innings. Beyond then, I'm open to it. So what is it? What is it about the few innings? Why are you more okay with it uh, after a few innings of normal? extra innings versus just immediately because you're you're at the height of the most exciting time mm-hmm. in the game it's a it's a tie game like literally right by definition of the start of extra innings uh any you know you have a chance to you know walk it off especially if you know if, if you're the home team it's it's a it's an exciting moment in the game so let's just continue to play baseball uh, the way we played it for the first nine innings and give give both teams an opportunity to win it that way until we go to this gimmick rule where, again, if you want to give each team, you know, one shot through the batting order, you, you know, through three innings, we still can't break up the tie game. I get it. It's, you know, the regular season is not the postseason, but the regular season is also still important and it's not the minor league season, right? It's, it's, it's not a minor league game. These games, MLB is de-emphasizing the importance of the regular season, but these games still matter and they should matter and they matter to fans. So, so why are we not just trying to continue through with it for at least the first few innings of an extra inning game rather than trying to say, okay, right away, all right, we, we got to wrap this up and, and go home, everybody. Yeah, I, I think that's maybe the most compelling argument that, that you've given out to me so far, at least from my point of view, because I do agree with you that the regular season in baseball is so important. I think it's the most unique regular season of the major sports. Um, I hate when we try to uh, lessen the importance of the regular season. I, I didn't really like expanding the playoffs because that, that lessened some of the um, – the benefits of the regular season are just being a great regular season team. I think if anything, we should embrace the fact that the baseball's regular season is, is such a grind and so difficult. And that's really where you separate the best teams from the really good teams. Um, so that, that point I think hits, hits home for me quite a bit. Um, but in general, I, I think I'm still a little bit more open-minded to this rule than you are. I'm curious to see if this is one of those rules where everyone kind of adjusts to it really quickly and just accepts it as the new norm, or if this is something where 
you just continue to get a lot of negative feedback from people in the game and, and fans of the game. And if it's something where there's a tweak they can do in the future, maybe similar to what you're talking about, where you have a few regular innings uh, of extra inning play and then you go to this rule, or if they will maybe find that, that the new pace of play in baseball is good enough and that we don't really need it. Um, I know most people are probably expecting it to just kind of be here for kind of the foreseeable future, but I am curious to see what the reaction to it is throughout the year. I think Rob Manfred likes it, and I think it's going to be here to stay. All right. Uh, Any other thoughts on rule changes, Ben? Any thoughts on baseball being ruined? Uh, I think think it's not quite ruined yet, but... (laughs) That is good news. What else do you want to talk about today? We've got some good questions we want to get to at the end of this podcast, but uh, maybe we'll talk a few prospects before we get to that. Yeah, I think we, you know, we talk so much about, you know, on our top 100 show and just throughout the course of the year, you know, the Gunnar Hendersons and Corbin Carrolls and Jackson Cheerios and, you know, the first round picks, Cam Collier, Elijah Green, Dylan Lesko, I think you've mentioned a couple times on the podcast yeah this has got to be like five in a row where you mentioned lesko so i appreciate you continuing the streak there yeah you might go back and check to see the future projection drinking game yeah, every exactly. time yeah, yeah. <laughs> mentioned dylan lesko <laughs> um but i was curious to get some of your thoughts on some players especially deeper down the the list or at least deeper down the levels of of the, each team's farm system looking at especially guys who have yet to reach full season ball because this feels like once guys get to full season level and start to blow up there, then not only does their stock, um, you know, in our eyes rise dramatically, but I think just within the industry, it becomes much more challenging to pull off a trade for those players. Um, you know, we've, we see a lot of teams have put a lot of scouts into the complex leagues, uh, both in Arizona and Florida and in the Dominican Summer League as well. And even trying to trade for those players, uh, I think over the last five years or so, has become more challenging where, uh, you know, you try to get that Jordan Alvarez from another club uh, or you're, you know, trying to trade for, um, you know, even thinking back to like Neftali Feliz when he was in rookie ball with, um, well, with the Braves, you know, you're, you're trying to, as a GM, trying to get that player thrown Fernando into Tatis, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Fernando Tatis Jr. A great, great example. So you're trying to get that player thrown into a trade who has more upside than maybe some, you know, double a likely relief prospect with a limited ceiling but more you know higher probability of reaching the major leagues but maybe there's more overall upside uh you know potentially with the lower level player and the gm on the other side is more likely to say well what are the odds i'm even employed (laughs) by this organization in five years by the time this guy ever reaches the big leagues that's that's really i haven't thought given that a ton of thought but i do think that's a fascinating aspect of of just the the process behind the scenes and how it works because it definitely it feels like there is some sort of information advantage that teams are trying to find at the lower levels because 
whether it's just the fact that kind of like we talked about last week, as players get closer to the minors, there's there's sort of a narrowing um, of the expectations of the roles that these players are going to become. And I would imagine mm-hmm. the, the consensus on the players also gets more aligned throughout the industry. But when you're dealing with these lower level players who are really toolsy and don't have long track records and still have a lot of physical development to go through. And you're still trying to decide if something is like a legitimate skill or something that, that maybe popped in a small sample size. It, it does seem like this is the area where teams are focusing. We hear about more and more teams are, are, aren't scouting the upper levels as much as they were in previous years and putting more emphasis on the lower levels like you were talking about. So this area of the game is fascinating to us and it, it seems like it's it's where teams more and more are, are spending their time in terms of scouting other systems and, and scouting their own systems. Um, well, I think it also, there's more of value to be gained probably from just live in-person evaluations yeah. of trying to project players at the lower levels and there is at the upper levels. At the upper levels, you have so much video on those players that you can pull up if you're a team you have so much data on all of those players even the data and the projection systems are are much less useful for the lower level guys than full season players and and especially as you get closer to double a and triple a i imagine um the projections are just much more consistent with those players than they ever could be with the lower level i would say even a lot some of the times the data itself as far as the track man data that you're getting can be more accurate at the upper levels compared to i know some teams don't trust like the dominican summer league setups <laughs> that are some we, teams are we still not at a point where we can like control for this and and make sure all the areas that that you're getting this information is legitimate like with with how much teams value this data i'm i'm kind of surprised that that's still the case i mean i've i've heard like <laughs> I, I i think yeah i think there are still some instances of that i don't i mean this is like an older one but i heard one where one time uh you know at a team's academy in the dr like it was like the bases or the mound like wasn't right (laughs) like it was just it was like they measured it and that was off and they were like oh goodness like the mound one is interesting too because we've even heard about that with with some college programs or teams are like we're all here from scouts they're like yeah we don't really trust such and such data point from from this team because we've heard their mound uh has has some stuff going on with it and and that could affect data that you're getting from a certain stadium so they think the mound is like too height, high height, yeah the height Ooh. would be non-standard yeah so non non-standard non-standard <laughs> or out of out of whatever the whatever the rules are for for what the mound is supposed to be yeah i've definitely heard that for multiple programs um so I guess we can never trust any of the data. That's, that's the lesson from today's episode. Go scout in person. Don't trust the numbers. So, that, I mean, I, I think that's just a, a minor part of it. But even if you had, let's say, you know, God came down and gave you perfectly accurate data on every player, th- there would still be more value in in the in-person evaluation for the yeah. lower-level players where you just have so much further to project than you do the a lot of the player at double double a triple a and and you just have yeah and you just have less history on those players the you know you could have a later round draft pick uh you know like a michael harris or somebody like that or especially on the international side where 
you know, you can have players who are signing for 70 grand, 40 grand, $133,000, whatever the case may be, might end up being, you know, pretty quickly much better sometimes than the player who signed for five, 600, a million dollars. Uh, I mean, the teams themselves even know that internally when they look at their own signings and they're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this guy we gave $250,000 to is actually, uh, you know, he's already passed our, you know, our top signings money-wise just as far as his talent level because, again, we're signing these players at 16, 17 years old and so much can change so quickly. So, yeah, I think there's there's a ton of value if you're able to come in and pick somebody's pocket at the lower level now at the same time i think the teams are probably getting wiser about which players they're holding on to where you know I, I'll, I'll have conversations with people with a club and they're like yeah we had these you know six or seven or eight guys from our dominican summer league who got asked about in trades and you know fortunately our you know gm was smart enough to not just <laughs> say uh sure uh, we'll do it you know they contacted us and said no well you know we, we, these are the guys we gotta actually make sure we i'm we curious keep. i'm curious how much chatter goes on with front offices and in just trying to assess which players teams don't want to trade because i imagine that information that we I, i've really not thought about that too much until we got into this conversation as well but i imagine that sort of like rumor mongering and information gathering and literally just who does this team not want to trade is very valuable information for organizations that they're constantly trying to figure out with conversations with trusted people in other organizations, just people they have relationships with. I'm utterly fascinated now about just the process that goes into trading for prospects and the amount of the amount of information the teams value and how they go about doing it because it is such a it seems like such a crazy environment to be in yeah i think there's you can certainly get a sense for which players a team views as off limits when you're in trade conversations but especially for the players who are at the complex league level or the dominican summer league even a lot of teams are just saying no on those trades for a wider range of players who you know, are not even like top 10 prospects in their system, but it's more just context dependent on, no, we're not going to give up this player in the DSL or in the Arizona complex league who we really like, and it's not a top 10 player, but we're not going to give them up for some rental reliever the way it probably would have been easier to do, you know, five to, to 10 years ago. Yeah. So kind of with that, let's, let's get into some of these prospects who haven't yet reached full season ball um, that you're either excited about or you like, or maybe you're just curious to see more of. Um, I'm sure there's plenty on the, the international market, Ben, that, that you've either got some insight into or you're intrigued about that maybe I don't even know much about at this point. I know the last few weeks I've, I've definitely not been focused on players at this level, so I think this could be an interesting conversation. But are there any interesting players you have, and then I have a few listed as well. And I'll also just um, mention that I, I believe as you're listening to this podcast, Josh Norris has a piece on the site kind of talking about 10 players who are expected to make their full season debuts. 
2023 that he's excited about for for one reason or another. So if you're interested in this conversation, you, you'll probably enjoy that piece too. And I believe that as, as soon as you're listening to this podcast, that should be on the website. Um, but I'll let you take it wherever you want to go, Ben. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say first, I don't, I, I'm not going to talk about any... I don't think you should choose any top 100 prospects, right? Yeah. Like Miguel Blaze would be an <laughs> obvious one with the Red Sox. Cam but he's, Let's talk about him more. Yeah, right. Or first round draft picks, right? Like I don't want, you know, Elijah Green is a not exactly a sleeper. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, but one guy I would point to pretty quickly would be Michael Arroyo, a shortstop with the Mariners. I, I think they've done a pretty good job in recent years of signing international prospects. Uh, I don't think that's new either. Obviously, they signed uh, Julio Rodriguez. They signed Noel V. Marte, uh, some pretty good arms, too, under the, uh, you know, under their previous international director, Tim Kistner. Uh, for, um, you know, they, they changed international directors and Still, still signing some really good players. Obviously, Gabriel Gonzalez, their number four prospect in that system, an outfielder from Venezuela, had a really good year uh, this past year, and, and he did reach full season ball. So, um, won't won't mention him quite yet. Then, but uh, the other player to watch in that system, who's who's yet to make his full season debut, would be Michael Arroyo a shortstop that they signed out of Columbia. Mm -hmm. um, had a really good season in the Dominican Summer League. He was a big signing for them, got over a million dollars when he signed before the 2022 season. Uh, just he's always been very hitterish. Uh, it's a pretty short swing, uh, has a knack for squaring up different types of pitches in different parts of the strike zone. He's not that tall but he is pretty strong i mean it's, it's definitely hit over power right now i i think there's some there's some bat speed there where you can project more power coming but uh, he's really a hit first guy which i really like to see in a young hitter and hopefully more more power will develop as he gets stronger i don't know that he's a a shortstop long term i think it's you know maybe second base down down the road and it's definitely more of an offensive minded player but you look at just what he did in the dsl last year um hit well controlled the strike zone got on base at a high clip and just the way his his swing works and his feel for the strike zone it all kind of suggests that that's going to continue to uh to work as he moves up the ladder let's just say for those following along and, and playing the future projection drinking game you have to drink because ben just picked a five foot ten 160 pound hitter so short hitters for ben go ahead and drink up uh but that's a good one no the bat sounds really fascinating he's probably more than he's probably more than 160 at this point that actually is another pet peeve of mine when like and, and it's on our site too because obviously we get our player height weight biographical information just fed to us from milb but like I, I think at one point alex reyes was listed at maybe 6'3 175 we haven't, we haven't listed at 5'10 180 right now in the handbook but okay it's not, that's not updated on the site for some reason so yeah so especially for the latin players it'll sometimes it'll have their 
height and weight from when they were signed at 16 or even when they were just registered to sign or when who knows was somebody might have just punched in some you know whatever they thought the player <laughs> was i i would love to have every player just height it get get their height and weight every year maybe not their height every year at a, or past a certain point this just is- every day on opening day let's just height and weight every player i think it would also be revealing and just more how how some of these players' heights are <laughs> oh, yeah. not what they... You know, one, one of the more um, funny things that happens on the amateur side is we will have reports for high school players who then go to college. Uh, and for a lot of the high school players, especially if they're not attending like formal events where you're actually getting measured uh, and weighed, you, you self-report your height and weight. And there's oftentimes not any official height or weight information for a number of these players. I mean, we're going 500 deep. Uh, so sometimes you just you don't have either official or up-to-date heights and weights. And, and it's crazy how common uh, high school players will go to college and then they'll suddenly get shorter, Ben. Nobody, nobody gets taller? I mean, sometimes, <laughs> but very rarely. Very, very rarely. Mostly they, they, get, they get bigger and they get shorter. When we get the automated strike zone, they're going to get a lot shorter. <laughs> yep, exactly. I've got uh, another sub-six-foot player. Um, but you can you can tell me if he's actually taller than than the five foot eleven we have him listed at, and that's Louis Cerna is interesting to me. And I will say for for a number of these players, actually I think this is the only one on my list. I don't have a ton of personal exposure to Cerna, but every time I read about him, when when Josh talks about him, Josh who covers the Yankees system for us in the prospect handbook, I'm really fascinated by him, and and I'm always a sucker for players with good changeups, and it sounds like. He just has a fantastic one. He was a um, he signed out of Mexico in 2021 for just fifty thousand dollars, so not a huge international signee. Ben, maybe you can add some more color to to his background at the time if you have it. But smaller guy with a quick arm has a four pitch mix, and in the way that scouts talk about his command, his ability to mix and match, his ability to spot that change up. Uh, is fascinating. I think the Yankees have done a really good job just adding velocity to their players. We've got them listed as a future 55 fastball, a couple of solid breaking balls. He's pitched 40 innings in each of the past two years, struck out north of, uh, I got not north of 30% in both years, but he struck out 32% of batters in 2022 in the complex league in just over 40 innings, 27% strikeout rate to 10% walk rate in 2021. And the DSL, um, so he's a pitcher who's fascinating to me. Uh, yeah, so that would be one for me. Do you have anything on Cerna in terms of like what he is now compared to what he was when he initially signed? I mean, this is the Yankees do such a good job of both identifying and developing players who are under the radar internationally and then within a year or two are just like blowing up and we're getting calls from pro scouts on guys being like what do you have on like this Luis Cerna guy or or you know Benitez or somebody else in their organization who's throwing you know 100 miles an hour who signed for like 10 grand right I mean I think the I think they just they're very they have a you know a large scouting staff which we've I mean, we've talked about on a lot of different episodes if <laughs> the the importance of just having a lot of scouts 
on the ground. It gives yourself more, especially internationally, more opportunities just to be in the right place at the right time on the right day um, to to find these players. Uh, and then they, I think they just have good scouts who also know what they're doing and they have the development system that helps helps these guys throw significantly harder but again in in Cerner's case like you said it's it's not so much the just the raw gas as his ability to to change speeds and and manipulate the ball especially on that changeup. yeah it wouldn't really surprise me if they were able to find a little bit more with the breaking stuff as well I mean we just have kind of solid average grades on it but it seems like teams are able to really refine uh, breaking ball for pitchers moving forward it wouldn't shock I don't know if the Yankees are one of the teams that are are big on minimizing um, your repertoire. I know there are some teams that are that basically just have their players focus on their best pitches. I wonder if if it's a case with him where as he moves up the system, he'll maybe scrap one of the breaking balls and really focus in and hone in on one one or the other. Um, I bet on a slider, just given just given how baseball is is moving in that direction. But do you do you know off the top of your head if the Yankees are one of those teams, Ben? The Braves seem like one of the key ones. Um, the Rays seem to do that as well. As far as saying, you know, we there's, want there's pitchers some teams to that I would say are more in the traditional mold. They want their starters to have a deep pitch mix, and other teams are like, no, we want you to focus on your best pitches. If you have one that's not good, doesn't look like it's uh, an average pitch, scrap it and focus on your good pitches and simply throw those more. I don't. I don't know off the top of my head what the Yankees' philosophy is on that. If they have one, yeah. Well, I mean, you also used to have, and maybe there are organizations we're not thinking of them off the top of my head that would even just be as cookie cutter saying we don't want you. Like, if your best pitch is a slider, no. Like, we're more of a curveball organization. We want everybody throwing like fastball, curveball. No, the Pirates did in the like early parts of the 2010s. They wanted everyone to throw sinkers. I mean, the fastball profile. they were more, yeah, they were more sinker ball heavy, yeah. you know, pardon the pun, so to speak. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the, the Royals used to be a little bit more, um, I think, rigid in their pitching development um, I would imagine philosophy. That, that shifts in the near future. They got a lot of new, new people in place. Um, I, definitely need to do a better job with pitching development. So I'm curious to see if they will... Uh, take on any specific sort of themes with their pitching development or if maybe it just becomes more individualized for players. Yeah. I mean, I think that really should be the key is make it individualized for each player. Not, you know, you can have a, have a philosophy, but you're not going to develop every player to try to be a clone of, of each other or to fit what your. I do think your if your philosophy is throw your best pitches more and and scrap your worst that that can still be individualized because not every pitcher will have the same strengths and weaknesses that that does seem like more of a a philosophy that can be applied differently. But what if a what if a pitcher has you're talking about a high school pitcher you just drafted who has a you know his best stuff is a, a fastball and a curveball but he's you know like a Grayson Rodriguez or, or somebody who just hasn't had much of a need for a changeup but you you actually you know maybe he probably should throw a changeup more yeah. just to develop that pitch because who knows that could end up being his his best pitch. He yeah. just hasn't had a need to, or or an opportunity to throw it much yet. That's a good point. I I think most of the teams, at least that I've got more in depth experience and knowledge of, have done a good job of of letting their younger players kind of try and develop whatever they're throwing at the time, and then as they get closer to, okay, you need to 
perform now you're going to have a role in the upper levels we want to see how effective you can be that's kind of the point where they say okay this pitch hasn't come along we're going to scrap it now so i do think that that it is smart to make sure your players are getting a chance to actually develop because they could have um really good tools or really good pitches that that they just developed that that they didn't have at the at the time that you put them into the system i should say so i think that's a, a good point to make all right I'll give you I'll give you another hitter who hasn't hit full season ball yet with the Cardinals, uh, Jonathan Mejia, shortstop, uh, or at least a shortstop for now. Uh, he was a big international signing for them out of the Dominican Republic coming into the 2022 season. So he played last year in the Dominican Summer League, had a pretty good year there. Uh, there was some swing and miss, but uh, he's a guy who has always earned really strong reviews for what he can do at the plate. Uh, a lot of bat speed, feel for hitting, uh, and power, especially for a kid who was um, 17. I think he, yeah, he's still 17 years old. He'll turn 18 in April. Uh, a lot of bat speed, a lot of hard contact, five home runs already last year. In the Dominican Summer League, I think it could end up being plus power. Uh, by the time he's physically mature and there's there's clearly some aptitude offensively there uh defensively um i like his bat i don't know <laughs> i mean it's That's great I, I i'm not looking at errors to judge a player obviously right but when you you know when you see a player made 18 errors in 32 games mm-hmm. at shortstop like you know some something is not <laughs> uh operating right there and you know I've, I've seen him before he's he's definitely an, an offensive minded guy I, I think he can play somewhere in in the infield maybe it's second base maybe it's third base mm-hmm. um probably not shortstop long term not, not saying push him off the position right now by any means but um but it is it is absolutely one of the better uh, offensive games for uh, you know a player beneath the full season levels. Do you know what I like about just looking at kind of thumbnail uh, numbers here is the the walk rate. Almost walked at a sixteen percent rate in the DSL. You mentioned some swing and miss, but it, just looking at those numbers, I, I'm always encouraged when a young player is able to walk that frequently. And I don't know if maybe that's more of a a statement about just the pitching in the DSL because certainly you could have elevated walk rates overall. But what do you yeah. think in terms of his like? his approach at the plate because yeah i think it's a little bit of each i yeah. mean he does he does have an approach like he's not just up there all or nothing swinging at everything but yeah if you go to a if you go to a dominican summer league game um you know again it's a lot of kids who are 17 18 years old who are very far away both the and and, and the same is true for the complex leagues here in the states um you, you definitely gain a better appreciation for the command of major league pitchers and also just the quality of defense and and the consistency of the quality of defense at the major league level compared to I think these guys who are in pro ball, but you're like, oh, yeah. And, and they clearly have, you know, athleticism and, and mm-hmm. you know, tools to develop, um, you know, just some, some of the raw ingredients that they have. But you're like, oh. Yeah, these guys are still yeah. these guys still have a lot of development ahead I, of them. I think those two aspects you mentioned, the the quality of the command, the quality of the defense, and then I'll add a third one and that's speed. I feel like those three are the most sh- like shocking at the big league level, like the disparity hmm. between those three versus 
lower levels in the minors and especially at the amateur level, once you're seeing how fast these big leaguers are who, who are seen as average runners in the big league level, I think it, I'm always impressed by how fast everyone kind of is across the board um, and the command of pitching. The command in pitching may be the biggest gap in from major league pitchers to like lower level or amateur pitchers. But I think it's interesting just the, the contrast and how shocking it is at times. If like when I've really been watching a bunch of high school players and college players, and then I see maybe a big league game for the first time in a while, it's always, it's very, it's good to, to fix kind of the scale in my head mentally, but it's almost shocking at times. Um, the gap and how, how far some of these players still have to go before you have like average major league command, um, and just how fast the game is defensively. You can see a lot of players who defend at a high level at the amateur level, but everything is so much slower there uh, that I think it's easier to maybe stand out more than you're going to in the future. Yeah, like you said, the ball the ball is coming off the bat faster. Everything the players are getting down the line faster, and the players just the dis- and especially the on defense the the consistency and the decision making. Yeah, it's. You know, you see guys rushing their throws or or actually a lot the other way is not getting rid of the ball fast enough. Like if you're, you know, you're growing up and your coach is hitting you, you know, 100 fungos every day. Well, yeah, you can take all the time you want to look pretty fielding a ground ball. But if you're, you know, from the time the ball is hitting the bat, the coach's fungo until the time you're actually getting the ball to first base is like, you know, six seconds, like that's not, yeah. <laughs> not doing you any good. The, the ease of the ease of the operations at the big league level too. Like you can, depending on your, your vantage point, it can look like the players are moving slow because it's so easy for them and they're not high effort throws on, on routine plays. And the effort level of the big leaguers compared to an amateur player is also significant. Uh, yeah. And, and the footwork and the knowledge of even just knowing how to take the right angle mm-hmm. to the ball to make that throw look easier or to actually make an easier throw yeah. for yourself. Uh, I th- and I think that a lot of it just comes with coaching that you get at the professional level that, um, you know, you're not, yeah, and I think you're the not getting of the, the, the reps of the high quality, um, like defensive chances, like those, those reps at speed are going to help you, adjust your internal clock and if, if you're just not exposed to baseball at that speed you just you just don't really know like how fast you need to be in your actions and like being able to make those plays in a routine routine way requires efficiency in movements and in angles and in first steps and all of those things so uh, it's always good to remember how, just how good these players are at the big league level it does make it stand out though too when you see a a especially a high school or an international amateur uh, shortstop who does have a very good internal clock for the game. Like I think a Dylan Cup, uh, high school shortstop for this mm-hmm. upcoming year's draft at uh, at high school in Georgia, Mississippi State commit, mm-hmm. and his like his raw tools defensively are you know solid, but they're not. There's no, he doesn't have like a 70 arm or, or anything like that. I wouldn't say um, he's like a, a toolsy, like a Bobby Wood Jr. at the same time. No, right. But he his internal clock for the game and, you know, his footwork is very, very crisp. His hands are very good. But his, you know who, his, his clock for the game is you know very advanced. Like that in high school? I think his tools have taken a jump, but he was kind of the same uh, at the same time was Anthony Volpe. 
He, he mm. just always seemed like a player who had really advanced instincts, internal clock, his actions. He played low to the ground. He was efficient with his movements, uh, but he wasn't super twitchy. He wasn't super strong. The arm strength wasn't crazy. I think, I don't want to overstate it, but I think at the time there might have even been people who thought uh, he would be more of a second baseman. But he's done, and again, that's that could be the case with him eventually, but I think he's done a lot better um, just in terms of being able to stick at the position than, than maybe some people thought at the time. Yeah, Robert Moore the same way. I mean, that's mm-hmm. shocker, right? Son of yeah. Dean Moore, but um, it definitely jumps out when, when guys have that clock for slowing the game down. Mm-hmm. I've got another player here who has not gotten to full season ball yet. He didn't even make his debut. Um, the rest of my players on this list are, are more draft players because I'm just more familiar with that demographic. But I didn't go into the first round, although the first one maybe you can – Maybe you can argue with me that this doesn't count because he was a supplemental first rounder, but I also am heavily biased for this player, and that's Thomas Harrington, who's a right-handed pitcher. With the Pirates, he was drafted out of Southern Lee High School, the same high school I went to, which was very cool on draft day to be able to talk about about that. Definitely the best uh, baseball player that's come through my high school. It's relatively new, but we're, we're certainly not known for producing um, big league prospects or professional players by any means. But... I'm fascinated with Harrington because I really like his foundation of command and pitching ability. And I think he is more of a projection pitcher than you typically get at the college level. I think he has a good combination of like safety for a starter profile, but also excitement about the upside that, that he could get to. He's still filling out his frame. He's athletic. He's got a clean delivery the fastball and the slider both t- took steps forward with Campbell. And I think Campbell has, has really earned a reputation as a strong pitching development program. They've, they've done a lot of really good things with some pitchers they've gotten uh, at the school. There are more pitchers on the way in the 23 class uh, and presumably in the future. But every time I saw him, I was, I was just really impressed with his ability to mix and match spot pitches, go North, South, go East, West in the zone, I think there's a chance that that he adds velocity and is you're looking at a guy with an above average fastball, an above average slider, and above average changeup. I don't necessarily know that the curveball is going to be a great pitch for him, um, but it could be one of those just change of pace pitches and a pitch you have in your back pocket to, to keep hitters off balance. But when you're looking at a guy that has all of that with potentially 60 control, I think he's one of the better strike throwers in the 2022 class. There's a lot to get excited about for me, and I'm very curious to see what he looks like just physically next year and how his stuff plays against more advanced hitters because he he isn't one of these pitchers that has just overpowering stuff or a really obvious out pitch, but I really like the sum of his parts, and I think with how teams have been able to maximize the value they're getting out of these command first profiles Harrington would be a a player that I think fits into that phylum of player and is someone that I'm excited about even outside of the uh, high school connection which is fun to talk about yeah the supplemental first round is not the first round I know the people like to say I was wondering if you were going to get on because it was too close no it is it is not you you can I'm sure they call themselves first round picks but um I'm setting the line at the at the end of the first, the true first round, how, how does how does he compare at the same 
time that they were in high school to like a Quinn Priester or or an Anthony Salamito in well, it's in that system. I, I didn't really know much about Thomas Harrington when he was a high school pitcher. He really wasn't on the radar too much. Like I knew about him in the sense that I had friends and people from Sanford who were telling me, "Hey, this this Thomas Harrington kid is really good. Um, he's one of the better pitchers." I was like, "Oh, okay, that's cool," but. I mean, I also have a lot of people who are like hyping up players that they know in person that honestly aren't very good prospects. So I knew that he was a good pitcher. I knew that he was committed um, to a D1 college at the time, but I never really heard a lot about him from a a draft perspective. So I think he was one of these under the radar players. Quinn Priester certainly had more pure stuff. Anthony Silometto, more pure stuff at the same time. Uh, I'm curious. I think Silometto does have really good touch and feel, um, surprisingly, maybe for, for kind of how the operation works. I really like a lot of what he does. The profiles of the fastball could be similar, and I'm more curious to see like what sort of shape Harrington's fastball takes in the future. Um, neither of them have overpowering fastball, so maybe it's an interesting comparison point there, but, but I do think they're still different pitchers in, in some way. One's left-handed, one's right-handed. The bodies are a little bit different. Uh, I'm not sure. Quinn Priester was was at another level from maybe both of these. Guys. I mean, Solometto was was very highly regarded, but both Priester and Solometto seem to be at a different tier in high school specifically. But I do think they're all pretty close right now. Maybe you just give the nod to Quinn at this point. I mean, that's that's how we have them lined up in the handbook and on the Pirates list. I th- I think still you maybe would be most excited about Priester's overall upside. Um, but it's a good trio of pitchers right there. How, how do you compare and contrast them? Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, it seems like you said Priester, probably the most famous and and probably most talented too at the same age. And um, you you know more about Harrington than I guess than I do compared to all these guys. Is kind of I'm kind of questioning moving forward. I would want to see like how many bats they're going to miss, and whether it's a velocity question or just a a life question is interesting because I think Priester's fastball probably played down from what we were expecting it uh, to play as. So that that's kind of something that all of these... And, and I don't know that there's a clear plus pitch. They're all like good control pitchers with well-rounded arsenals. Hmm. And so if you can get a little more oomph in some of their stuff, look for them to take a step forward. But I do think maybe Thomas has the best control of the group. He's just so polished in how he does everything. All right. I'll, uh, I'll give you some more, some more infielders. Um, this guy, I mean, he's kind of like a stereotypical Ben Badler guy, I guess, but, uh, drink, drink up with, with the Reds, Carlos Jorge, uh, second baseman, smaller guy, five uh, ten. I don't know about five ten. That's another <laughs> one where. Maybe, maybe it, it's tough. I don't mean, maybe he grew. <laughs> I, I remember seeing him when he was like, again, he was actually like, he was younger. Uh, like teenagers it was, are notable for growing a lot, Ben. So come on. Yeah. But, it, and he did grow a little bit through, you know, through the signing process, but he's always like a smaller dude, but he, you know, he got stronger. Um, I don't think he's you know like a big power guy, but he always had pretty good back control from the left side. Quick twitch athlete could run and and just good feel for hitting, consistently finding the barrel. Uh, played for the Reds last year. 
as an 18-year-old in the Arizona Complex League um, on base percentage over 400. He did hit seven home runs, so I don't know how much of that is just Arizona air um, or what. Again, I'm, I'm not expecting him to be a big power guy. He, he could end up surprising, but uh, I really think it's more going to be about the ability to you know, play in the middle of the field, get on base at a high clip, uh, and he does have speed. So um, he's somebody who I – I really like, and, and I think the Reds have done a good job since since they hired Trey Hendricks because their international director a few years back, and you know obviously even before then they signed Ellie De La Cruz, who's who was looking pretty uh, pretty spectacular too. But if you just look at the lower levels, you know they have guys like Leonardo Balcazar, uh, shortstop, who they signed out of Venezuela a couple of years ago, also had a good year. In the Arizona Complex League, uh, Ariel Almonte, an outfielder, uh, bigger dude, 6'3", corner outfielder, all the way. Uh, I was a little more skeptical on him when when he signed, but uh, again, another good year. There's still some swing and miss there, but he, he does have, you know, he shows some feel for hitting and, and power uh, to the bat, too. So there's um, kind of an array of hitters you know your well yearling confidant has, has gotten a little bit more uh beyond those those guys and, and he signed a you know a, f- a few years before then but uh definitely a few guys uh especially on the position player side for the reds but i have a uh, you know an, an a special uh affinity for carlos jorge just a, a smaller guy who's can good athlete who i, I think can can hit and, and and continue to surprise people do you have anyone over six foot on your list, Ben? <laughs> uh, well, El Monte will uh, will be. Maybe, maybe we we'll get to some of the outfielders. We'll get some <laughs> some bigger dudes. I do think it's when you're talking about all these players in the red system, they might sneakily have one of the most interesting farm systems in baseball, just with the quality of the depth of players they have, and depending on like development paths, we could be looking at radically different like like how we think about the red system maybe a year from now or a year and a half from now could be radically different in either direction because they've got a ton of really interesting players at the lower levels and it feels like more interesting depth than maybe any farm system in in, base, in baseball right now maybe the guardians would be the other comparable team in terms of like quality of depth but yeah the guardians like the reds, are super the reds deep are always brought up with with just strong depth farms and you just had a list of players yeah, if you go, if if you want a bigger, bigger bodied dude, I'll give you a yeah, let's, let's uh, see a big man that Ben Badler likes. Ruben Ruben Santana with the D backs, um, playing the Dominican Summer League for them last year, and man, he's he he's strong. Like he's a third baseman, he can he can actually run pretty well. Uh, you wouldn't think it for for his size, but he can run. But um, I don't know. He, he, he's a third baseman, and, and it's really about his ability to hit and hit with power. Um, he can really drive the ball with impact, with damage. Um, a little surprised, actually, that the home run numbers weren't higher last year, but I think that will come when you see the, you know, the exit velocity or, uh, or just the show he can put on in BP. There's definitely power in there. Uh, and it's it's an aggressive swing, but he definitely has feel for for hitting and and is not a big swing and miss guy. 
and there's some feel for the strike zone too. So a lot of good components and offensive tools to build around with with Ruben Santana. He seems interesting really all around. There doesn't seem like an obvious hole in, in the scouting report there. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think he's probably more of an offensive minded guy mm-hmm. still but but i i don't project that he has to move off the position by any means i just think the kind of the most exciting stuff about him is the damage that he's able to do when he's at the plate gotcha like that one um my next guy will be another pitcher this time it's a pitcher with plenty of stuff um and maybe could have been a first rounder but injury prevented that i'm going with connor prelip who has yet to make his pro debut. He was recovering from Tommy John surgery that kept him out of the 2022 season with Alabama, cut short his 2021 season as well. I remember just hearing about him as an underclassman, I think during the the 2021 draft cycle, hearing the way scouts talked about him was pretty insane. His 28 innings that he actually got to throw with Alabama was dominant in those 21 innings. He struck out 47 batters, walked just seven. That's just over 15 per nine uh, strikeouts and 2.3 per nine in walks. The stuff was fantastic. It was um, low 90s getting into the 95, 96 mile per hour range from the left side. It was a slider with a ton of spin, generated a ton of whiffs, an easy plus pitch, and, and I was getting a lot of plus-plus grades on that. He, he really didn't have to throw a changeup too much, um, but that pitch also missed a lot of bats. It could easily be a plus pitch in the future as well, but there's just questions about uh, what kind of pitcher is he going to be. He did throw a few pre-draft bullpens prior to going in the second round in the 2022 draft, and the stuff looked similar to what he had shown uh, before getting injured. So that was a good sign. I am questioning just like how good is the control? Because I do think we have a tendency to overrate control of pitchers at the amateur level because it's just easier to have lower walk rates against pitchers who are going to expand the zone. And I think strike zones in general are more inconsistent. Um, so just coming back from that injury, how good is the control at the next level? Um, and is he going to look like a guy who should have been a top of the first round draft pick that that the twins are able to get in the second round i'm just utterly intrigued with the pure stuff there it's it's rare to find a left-handed pitcher who had his combination of stuff for three pitches who threw the sort of strikes he did um so that one's that one's really fascinating for me yeah he um yeah he sounds like he could be a a pretty pretty intriguing guy once he gets gets going yeah, in pro he bowl just doesn't have a ton of innings at all in college in high school he came from wisconsin so can't imagine he threw too many innings there in high school so uh, a bummer that that he got injured as it is with all the pitchers who get injured but yeah he, he's one that i'm very excited to see in 2023 and he i imagine he's a guy who who gets assigned to full season ball pretty quickly and then see what happens all right i'll give you uh, i'll give you one more shortstop um William Bergoya Jr. shortstop with the Phillies, one of their big international signings uh from their class in 2022 out of Venezuela. Um numbers he had last year were kind of ridiculous just as far as the extremes of it. <laughs> um he hit 380. He struck out 3 times 
in 83 plate appearances. It's so it's, yeah, um, it's like a four sub 4% strikeout rate. Uh, he also only had three extra base hits, three doubles. I didn't go back and like check the game logs or anything, but there's a good chance some of those doubles could have been like ground balls that snuck past the third baseman or the first baseman, and he mm-hmm. <laughs> he legged out. Um, so he he has excellent back control. Obviously, it's a lot of contact and minimal power. I mean, it's bottom of the scale power right now but he projects to stick at shortstop so i mean really the key for him is just going to be how much stronger is he going to get and how much more power is he going to grow into because he does make a ton of contact and he can play shortstop he can stick at the position um but it's also hard to make it work if you you know are going to have 20 power uh at the major league level to to play every day so uh definitely a an interesting guy just it depends on how much stronger and how much more power he's able to grow into yeah that's a good one it also lines up nicely with the guy that i was going to bring up next and that's chandler simpson who also is a, a speedy guy with next to no power yep uh he played he was drafted in the second supplemental round by the Rays, um, led NCAA hitters in average with, I think he hit 430, 433 it looks like, in college, played for Georgia Tech. I mean, he's he's fun because you don't often see players that have both an 80 and a 20 on their scouting report, and I feel like it's a very legit top-of-the-scale run grade and a very legit bottom-of-the-scale power grade. He is a slappy contact hitter who does not drive the ball with impact. The exit velocities aren't there. The extra extra base hits aren't there. He had three doubles in eight games in the FCL in 2022, and he did hit well there. He he got on base. He's got a high OBP. He walked more than he struck out. I mean, the contact skills are fantastic, and we even have a plus hit grade on him, which uh, it's just such a unique profile um, that I'm curious to see how it plays at, at the full season level because there just aren't very many players who have – such little power that turn into impact big leaguers. Um, and, and he's not a player who has an obvious plus defensive position either. Maybe maybe that becomes center field given his speed, but he played infield in the past, has kind of a weird arm action, doesn't have the greatest arm. So, I mean, I don't necessarily think that you need to have a great arm to be an impact defender. I think just given the amount of range he could cover, I, I would imagine he could turn into a, a solid defensive outfielder uh, he played mostly left field which is weird to see from an 80 grade runner too so there's just a lot of outlier skills and questions with his profile and i i really want a player like simpson to get to the big leagues because i think he'd be just be a ton of fun to watch kind of similar conversations that we have with enrique bradfield really uh, i think bradfield is a much more polished prospect and hitter and defender overall but uh, simpson just given his pro debut and given the speed and, and power contrast, and I think he legitimately is a good hitter. You just wish he had just a lit, even if he had 30 power, he would be significantly more exciting. Um, but you just wonder if, if the bat's going to get forced out of his hands uh, as he faces better pitching. So he's one that I'm excited to see in, in full season ball. Yeah, and it's tougher with a guy with that profile when he's already a college player. Too, right? Exactly. When it's like looking how much at more a... strength is coming here, how much more physical projection. And and we never really had any people say that there was more coming. So 
I mean, we expect it to stay bottom of the scale. I don't, I don't necessarily see much more coming. Um, yeah. How, how would he compare to thinking of like a former Ray now, like, like Xavier Edwards, somebody like that. Who's I think also he felt better about Xavier Edwards defensive profile, right? Like he could play one of the middle infield positions. I mean, Chandler already moved off the infield and is playing left field now. I mean, you look at the left fielders at the big league level, they don't, they don't look like Chandler Simpson at all. So hopefully he plays center field. Um, and hopefully he just keeps hitting for, I mean, if he hits for high average and gets on base, there is a role to be had there. Uh, I, I'm just kind of curious how that offensive profile changes as, as he faces better pitchers. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll move on to the outfield now. And I mean, a couple of guys, I won't mention them or I'll, I'll just mention them briefly now. Cause I've, we talked about him on, I think the last episode, but Luis Lara an outfielder with the Brewers and uh, Juan DePaula outfielder with the, uh, the Dodgers. We talked about them before, but um uh, Jason Churio. I know we've talked about his older brother, Jackson Churio, uh, just about every other <laughs> podcast, and rightly so, because uh, he is spectacular. But his younger brother, Jason, is an outfielder um, with the Guardians, and he's <clears throat> uh, he's a different kind of player than, than Jackson. I, I think Jackson is more of that, like, quick twitch like super explosive athlete and everything is just extremely explosive with jackson churio whereas jason you know also a a good athlete you know lean lean body like good runner but not to the same extent as his brother but he is coming off of a very good season for the Guardians in the um, in the Dominican Summer League, he's he's just a pretty polished hitter for his age. Uh, he had almost twice as many walks as strikeouts in the Dominican Summer League. Like we talked about, you know, some of the walks is just a byproduct of playing in the DSL. But I think in his case, especially when you're talking about almost twice as many walks as strikeouts. It is indicative of both an eye for the strike zone and his innate feel for putting the bat to the ball. Obviously, it's something the Guardians have prioritized in a lot of their international signings from from the last few years and with pretty good results uh, so far, I would say. So, yeah, I like the, I like the athleticism, uh, obviously, like, the, the hitting ability, the strike zone judgment, and some pretty good bloodlines there <laughs> so far, too. That's a good one. All right, I've got one more that I'm intrigued with, and this one is more just because I, I'm curious to get more information on him, and I'm curious how badly I missed on him in the draft because that is Dylan O'Ray, who was a third-rounder from the Brewer. The Brewer signed him in the third round in 2022, out of Canada, he was the first player drafted who we didn't have on the board. Um, he wasn't selected as high as, as Evan Carter of the Rangers, who was also uh, kind of an under-the-radar player who, I mean, I remember when Evan Carter was drafted, I reached around in the industry. I was like, who is this guy? What do you have on him? And a lot of what I got back was, yeah, we don't we don't really know what they're doing here. Clearly, they were onto something with Evan Carter at the time. And I'm curious if the Brewers have done something similar with O'Reilly. 
I mean, he's a smaller guy, five foot nine, 160 pounds uh, at the time of being drafted. You'd love that, Ben. Uh, double plus runner. We were told good hitting ability, defensive versatility to play multiple positions. He played shortstop and second base uh, in a small sample in the ACL in 2022, hit for high average. Um, doesn't hit the ball hard yet. I'm curious how much power he's going to have moving forward. Showed a decent approach in the zone, six walks, seven strikeouts. So I'm mostly curious just to see if Dylan O'Ray is more Evan Carter or if he's more Stephen Paolini, who is another outfielder who I didn't have high in the draft and, and so far hasn't turned out to be that great with the Braves. But these players who, who get popped, who kind of surprise me during the draft, I tend to just think that I missed on the player rather than the team did something crazy because these guys have way more information. So I'm, I'm curious to see what kind of player he really is. Um, so, yeah, that would, that would be my last one that I had written down here. Yeah, he definitely fits into that slap hitter mold. I mean, it's bottom of the scale, power, smaller guy, very good strike zone mm-hmm. judgment, puts a lot of balls in play. Did you consider Not a- him for the Brewers <clears throat> top 30? Yeah, yeah, he's uh he's he's there. I mean, it's just it's you know, he's he's in the he's in the very back of the list. Um but it's probably not shortstop long term. He's he's going to have to develop more power, be able to drive the ball with some more damage on on contact, but there is athleticism, there is speed, mm-hmm. there is an eye for the strike zone and and some feel for the barrel too, but um, kind of like you were talking about with Chandler Simpson, but at the same time, he's also significantly younger than him. Yeah. So there's at least more hope that he can get stronger and ultimately um, Man, grow into more the, power. The Brewers have a ton of up-the-middle position player depth in their system. I like that. It's a good, good problem to have. Yeah. All Not right. a problem at all, actually. No. <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, it, teams are constantly complaining about having too many good players well, at premium positions. Are. Yankees fans actually are, so there are some people out there who don't like it. Want to see more distributed prospects throughout your system. We want more third basemen. We need, we need to, yeah, we need to sign more international first base prospects. Exactly. Do you um, have any other guys? Yeah, the Marlins have some pretty intriguing guys who are who are on their DSL club. Um, I think Jose Gerardo was probably the most famous or maybe we made <laughs> the most famous and, and people are, uh, jumping on, on that now. Um, but he had a, he had a big year in, in the DSL hit 11 home runs. He has big power. He has a outstanding arm too. Um, you could put a 70 on, on his arm. So there's some, some pretty big tools. I think ultimately it's it's corner outfield more than it is center field. And, you know, there were some strikeouts that are are concerning, but uh, he was one. And then they had, you know, Anthony Peguero was on that team too. Another outfielder who uh, also is probably headed to, to a corner spot, but he had a nice year. You know, Marco Vargas, an, an infielder on that team, had a good year too, but I think those were, you know, the Marlins have some pretty intriguing guys at the lower levels of four, um, or at least on that Dominican Summer League club for a team that 
you know, didn't really spend a lot of money. Like there's no million dollar signings for them in in that pool of, of players. They really signed a, a big class and, and spread their money around yeah. quite a bit. Maybe that's a good strategy for them because they really need some some hitting development to supplement some of the, the great stuff they've done with pitchers in that system. So it's it's encouraging to hear that there are some guys tracking in the right direction there at the lower levels. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you probably know this guy, Carlos, but uh, Yasser Mercedes with the Twins. Um, he, you know, he was a big prospect as as an amateur player coming out of the Dominican Republic. Uh, got to see him for, for a few years uh, training down there before he signed. And he always stood out for his physicality and athleticism and tools i mean a chance to be a, a big power speed threat but uh questions on swing and miss how much power he would or excuse me how much contact uh he would ultimately make and and i think that's still um uh a question mark with him especially against some of the breaking stuff that he's he's seeing but he he made more contact than i would have expected him to make in the DSL and you just look overall at his line. I mean, 355, 420, 555, the, the strikeout rate was, was very manageable. So you, mm-hmm. you combine that yeah. with the, the power and, and the speed he has. It's a, it's a pretty exciting player. I think the, the overall miss rate and the zone miss rate, especially jump out as, as pretty good numbers. If he can just kind of improve the swing decisions a little bit, chase outside of the zone a little bit less, I think you have to feel pretty good about that overall because just in terms of pure contact, nothing on the numbers that I'm looking at right here jumps out as, as crazy, crazy bad. Yeah, he's uh, yeah, he's somebody where, you know, sometimes you have you have concerns about swing and miss. And then, you know, like, like we talked about James Wood, and I'm, I'm not saying he's the next James Wood, but guys who have exciting athleticism and, and power and tools, but you have concerns about swing and miss risk with them and they go to pro ball and you're like oh actually this this wasn't as bad as i (laughs) as i thought it was going to be and that's that's pretty exciting trying to think if there are any other obvious examples of of that kind of player because typically it's it's the exact opposite that you see if i think of one i'll mention it but i'll let you go on for for your next players if you have more i mean those are the i mean those are the main guys i wanted to make sure to uh to bring up so uh yeah well hopefully you guys um Got a few more players further down boards that, that you can look forward to watching this year, uh, whether you're interested in it from a fantasy perspective and want to get a leg up on some of your league mates or you're just a fan of the game like we are. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, Ben, in the in the Battle Dynasty League, like as we've been recording this podcast, I'm I'm on the clock for my first-round pick in the uh, in our first-round player draft. Do you want to know who, who's come off the board so far and tell me who I should take? Who do you got? So the the order so far, I'm picking ninth. It went Jackson Holiday, Tamar Johnson, Drew Jones, uh, Senga went fourth, Cam Collier fifth, Yoshida sixth, Brooks Lee seventh, Elijah Green eighth. So at the top of my queue right now, I've got Kevin Prada, Zach Neto, Dalton Rushing, Gavin Cross, Jace Young, Jet Williams. Who you know who I'm taking? Yeah, you're taking Kevin Parada, aren't you? Of course, yeah. of course. So if you're curious about that, I was just happening in the background. I wanted to mention it. So since we talked about all those players, I figured you would immediately guess I was taking Parada. 
Um, but yeah, let's get into some questions maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get some listener questions in. Yeah. So we have one from Nets fan still on Instagram. Good thing you're still hanging with Brooklyn there. Uh, after trading away some some players, uh, Kevin Pratt. Wow, I didn't. I really forgot this question was here. I didn't even bring this up because I was taking Kevin Prada. Kevin Prada or Gabriel Moreno? Who do you think will have a better career and bigger overall impact? I mean, Kevin Prada. Clearly, I'm, I'm drafting him in my my fantasy league. No, I, I mean, I think it's safer to say Gabriel Moreno, right? We have him higher on the top 100. That's that's what we're trying to do with that list. Is line up players in terms of their their future value and their future impact. I think it's it's much easier to see a path where Kevin Parada doesn't make the big leagues and, and Reno is really about to step into a prominent role with the Diamondbacks this year. Um, that said, I like both of these players. I think I think Kevin Parada has significantly more power, um, but there are fewer question marks with Moreno's overall profile. I think it's pretty safe to say Moreno here, but um, I also acknowledge that I'm, I'm maybe the biggest Kevin Parada fan you'll find. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I think the like you said, the power upside is definitely greater with Parada. And even if you just wanted to argue just overall offensive value, you could say Parada. Although I do like Gabriel Moreno a lot mm-hmm. as a hitter. Um, but when and when you look at the overall value, Moreno is much more likely to stick a catcher and defend the position quite well too. Uh, so I would give the edge to Moreno, but. Man, if I mean Kevin Prada goes out this year and just goes absolutely bananas, I I see a, I could see a scenario where he ends up being a top twenty five, top twenty, maybe top ten prospect in in baseball if he if he just really goes that bonkers offensively. You know, you know what I love about Kevin Prada is I, I think he's a phenomenal pure hitter and he just continues to add to the power. I mean, he hit twenty six home runs with Georgia Tech. Um, as a draft eligible sophomore after hitting nine home runs in 2021, I've heard some scary good things about the raw power lately as well. Um, so I just think he's going to be a monster offensively. I honestly don't care where he plays defensively. And I think it's also interesting with this question is Francisco Alvarez exists. And so if he's the player, everyone expects him to be, what is the catching situation like in New York? Um, and how does that impact just the overall, value of these players or their ability to be an impact player just given the positional um like the thresholds for offense for certain positions but um i'm glad that that you're high on kevin prada as well ben got someone else on the train with me um let's go to our next question hardy baseball on instagram asks who are your personal helium prospects for the 2023 draft in high school and the college classes I'm not entirely sure what this question is asking, Ben. Is this who we like higher than than where we have now, or who are players we think will rise? I think maybe, guy, yeah, guys. I would take it as players who have a chance to really rise up the board. Maybe guys who are not, you know, projected first rounders, or, or guys who are not maybe in the top fifty or so, but guys who could jump into the mix, or just players who could really rise up this year if you see them having a a big spring or, or taking their game to to the next level okay well i feel like a little i feel a bit bad about this because i'm the one making the list and i have an idea of who's moving up boards already but that's it's not published it's not really fair like guys like landon Marutis is is throwing really hard early this spring in florida 
I could see him moving up boards very quickly. Boston Barrow, a shortstop out of California uh, on the high school side, is getting a lot of helium early on. There are some junior college arms uh, I could mention that are getting some helium. I'm planning to write a little bit more about those guys next week, so I'll kind of leave that for now. But in terms of players who I haven't specifically heard up arrow feedback yet, who I could see moving up higher uh, in the spring. On the college side, Grayson Hitt is a name that I'll mention. He's a left-handed pitcher at Alabama. He has already gotten a bit of helium from the fall, but I think we've captured that helium on the rankings. We have him at 49 overall. After looking at the quality of left-handed pitching in this year's class, I was struck by the lack of depth and the lack of impact in the class. I, I think we've had a few strong years of left-handed pitchers, both on the high school and the college side. But I mean, in our position previews for, for the Stockwatch series that I was doing, I, I put a 30 on the left-handed pitching of the class. I really don't think it's that great right now. And because Grayson Hit is one of the top college pitchers who could easily be taking a significant step forward in his control this year, I, I could see him moving into that Really what I, I would say is a, a bit of a vacuum uh, on the college left-handed pitching front. I'll have to check to see when is the last time there wasn't a college left-hander taken in the first round, but that is a super valuable profile in the industry. Um, so someone I'm expecting to move into that uh, in, into that spot, and, and right now hit would be one of my favorites. On the high school side, um, there are a few players, Johnny Farmello, I could see moving up even more because I only ever hear positive things about him. Ben, you talked about him in our last podcast. If people want to hear more about him, I think another interesting profile is Michael Carrico at Davidson, uh, a catcher who played with team USA hit phenomenally. Well, last year has great contact, showed good power. I think he has all the tools to catch at the next level. And again, like, I don't think it's a fantastic catching draft after you get beyond a Blake Mitchell, a Kyle Teal, and a Ralphie Velasquez, unless maybe you think Evan Grahovic is a catcher. I think most people think of him as uh, maybe a third baseman or an outfielder. Um, so those are a few players um, that I point to. I, I think there are a number of pitchers here who could take steps forward as well, but, but I'll let you go if you have any obvious names that you like, Ben. Yeah, I'll give you a couple pitchers and a couple position players. On the pitching side, um, Josh Noth, right-handed pitcher from New York, mm -hmm. is he's young for the class. He's got good mechanics, good feel for pitching, throws a lot of strikes. Uh, one of the better breaking balls in the class, too. Um, not one of the hardest throwers in the class, but not like a soft tosser by any means. I mean, we've had him up to... I think 93, 94 already, um, just off the top of my head. And he is somebody where I, I could see the uh, – actually, I think we've had him a little higher than that. But, you know, I, I could see the stuff ticking up a little bit. And if it if it does, in terms, in terms of the pure velocity, I think he's somebody where he could jump up the boards. And, and in a similar vein, Derek Schaefer – uh, a high school right-handed pitcher from Arizona, another athletic right-handed pitcher who throws a lot of strikes, is young for the class, and has good feel for his secondary stuff, both the breaking stuff and his changeup. Again, not the superpower velocity of 
some of the highest octane fastball pitchers in the class, but I could see that uh, I could see that developing this year and then having him really rise up the board, or I could see him. I could see that happening after he gets to Tennessee. And then we're, you know, we're talking about him as a potential first round pick uh, in a few years coming out of uh, college at, at Tennessee. So I could see, I could see that happening too on the, on the position player side, AJ Ewing is a shortstop and just a very hitterish guy. Saw him, especially at the beginning of last summer. I mean, he wasn't at, uh, PDP, for example, um, at the beginning of the summer, but I got to see him at the PBR does a, a tournament, the national program invitational. And he, he was just barreling everything. Yeah, he went nuclear there in that event. He, he was just so, so impressive there. Uh, just a very calm, easy swing, very hitterish guy. So I, I think the more, you know, people see him, uh, the more he could, raise his his status and then george lombard who i don't know it's tough because he he already seems like he had so much helium Mm -hmm. over the past year because he just keeps getting better and bigger better and better uh bigger taller faster stronger uh son obviously of of george lombard the you know former big leaguer and i think he's now the, the bench coach with the tigers so uh, obviously a, a smart player, very fundamentally sound. So uh, a lot to like with him. It just seems like he keeps trending up and would not be surprised to see that continue this spring either. I'll add one more shortstop. He's in a similar range as A.J. Ewing is right now on our draft list. Uh, that's Adrian Santana out of Doral Academy in Florida. So mm-hmm. a Southern Florida player. He'll still be 17 on draft day by about two days. Uh, so one of the younger players in the class, I think, viewed as one of the best defensive shortstops in the class as well. And he's got tools. Um, he's a double-plus runner who's turned in some of the better run times in the class. I think you could say he's a near-top-of-the-scale runner. Um, great actions in the infield, quick hands, reliable glove work, footwork around the bag. He's got enough arm strength to stick at the position. I personally love the swing, just just how smooth and easy it is. Uh, from both sides of the plate, he's he's not the biggest player in the world, so I'm really describing here a, a Ben Badler type of player. Um, but he did sneak a, a few balls over the fence in batting practice um, at PDP, I think specifically that I was impressed with. Just mm-hmm. just the raw power that he showed was a little bit sneakier than I expected it to be. Just kind of sizing him up physically, even if he's not a an average power guy at the end of the day i think he could add a little bit more physicality to his frame to where he's we're not talking about a a 20 or 30 maybe he becomes more of like a 40 power guy in the future that that wouldn't be shocking to me but um just with his age his defensive ability switch hitting contact ability swing uh and he's playing in a good area of the country where he'll have an opportunity to face good pitching he's going to the nhsi where he'll have a chance to face really good pitching in front of a massive crowd of scouts that's always a, a platform event for players, um, he's already pretty highly regarded. So if he goes off there, I could see a few teams who really value up the middle profiles, youth, contact ability. I could see teams really liking him uh, and seeing him move up further. Um, all right, let's jump into our next question. Mets perspective on Instagram asks, who is the best amateur player you have seen who didn't have the career you expected for them? Um, my obvious one, I think, is Austin Beck. 
I think he's probably the best player that I've seen live who just really hasn't done anything at the pro level. I believe I've mentioned him a few times on this podcast, and I wish I had a, a bigger blanket of players to draw from, but I think just in terms of tools, in terms of how impressed I was with him, seeing him in person, um, again, one of the first players that I ever went to go see after starting with Baseball America was Austin Beck, and he homered multiple times, hit a double, the other way showed plus speed had insane bat speed still might be some of the best pure bat speed that i've seen it's like austin beck austin hendrick i'm trying to think there's one other player who i always kind of lump in the same conversation but either way just the physicality the tools the the impact ability and it turns out um guys who you don't have much track record of hitting uh, against quality competition in high school can be risky profiles. And I think that's just kind of been the case with Austin Beck. He, he just never figured it out with the bat. Um, Joe Adele is similar, but he also has actually made the majors. So, so I think it's safe to say Austin Beck for me. Yeah. On the other hand, sometimes the guys who look like polished hitters and it seems like check every box you look for don't work out either. And for me, that was Dustin Ackley <laughs> Good one. at, um, out of North Carolina, the, you know, the second overall pick in the 2009 draft and guy who went ahead of him was pretty good too. <laughs> but, but, uh, Dustin Ackley and he, he kept hitting in, in the minor leagues and his, his rookie year was pretty solid. Like he, he had a good rookie year. And then after that, it just, oof, kind of, kind of rough, Beyond that, I, I thought he would be a guy who could be a you know perennial all-star, you know super high on-base percentage guy, and it just did not play out that way at all. All right, uh, Benjamin Chase on Twitter asks, "What's the biggest internal size slash build slash background bias that you two have to push against when evaluating a player? For instance, for me, pitchers over six five or six six are notorious for struggling to stay in sync." So I have to fight against a personal bias against taller arms in evals. Uh, this probably ties back to a conversation we had in the last episode about just uh, how we view different builds or maybe some scouting conventional wisdom um, that we don't necessarily buy into. Uh, but do you have any obvious ones here, Ben, for you that you kind of have to make sure you're not letting an implicit bias show in, in your evaluations? The the first thought for me is in terms of size of players is I'm, I'm probably always skeptical of just small first baseman or oversized center fielders. Um, and, and in terms of oversized center fielders, I mean like players who are projecting to stick at the position. I probably should be more open-minded to big center fielders just because the size of players in general in the game is increasing and continuing to increase. Um, and we've seen so many examples of bigger shortstops and I think there are even a few more notable examples of bigger center fielders. Uh, but for me, once you get over like 6'5 and you're playing center field, I'm, I'm probably more pessimistic than I should be about you playing there at the big league level just because there are not many players you can point to who have done it for any uh, reasonable amount of time. But it could easily be the case where in 10, 15 years, it's the norm for, for players who are that big to play there because athletes are just getting bigger and stronger and faster every year. So... Those are maybe a few of mine that I initially think about, but do you have any that, that you have to fight against? I realize I 
misread the question, so I had an answer to a different question. Well, what was the question that you thought it was? You can I thought I thought we were talking about a just a bias in general that we have or that we see in evaluating players. That that's that's in the heart of this question too. I think to, that's fine. I think so. Well, for for me to kind of I guess ignore your question and invent a new one that you didn't ask would be sometimes just a tendency to where we overweight the most recent information that we have on a player and sometimes that's valuable where you're talking to a scout uh, or scouts who saw you know, in in August, who just saw a player just recently mm-hmm. in in July, in August, compared to when you're talking to a scout in you know in May, who just saw the player in in May. But I, I think there's sometimes a tendency to overweight just the most recent conversation sometimes mm-hmm. that you have with people within the industry and and move players too much based on that where the time series of when you got that information is actually not that important um you know we're making we're making a whole bunch of different calls let's say throughout the off season the call that you make in january or december on a player is not should not necessarily be weighted more heavily in in the evaluation or the ranking than when you have that same call say um in in october or or november when it's more or less working off of the the same sample of Mm -hmm. of available information it's funny that you say that because i think if anything like an anchoring bias has been more of an issue for me personally where where i'm the opposite and i think especially Mm -hmm. with hitters with pitchers, I feel like I'm a little bit better about reacting to the new information in a way that's fair. Um, but with hitters, I've found, I think, a tendency to really um, value the first look and, and what is the first impression that I have on a player. And it's harder to shake that for me. I think one example in terms of our actual rankings, uh, and this is both me seeing the player and also the initial feedback that I got on a player where I really just stuck to probably longer than I should, is Adrian Del Castillo out of Miami who was a second-round pick by the Diamondbacks in 2021. Mm. At the start of that draft class in 2021, he was viewed as one of the better hitters in the class. Uh, I think we had him top 10. We had him very high up the rankings. He had a very bad season during his draft year. We moved him down to 25. And in hindsight, I should have moved him down a lot further than that. He ended up going 67th overall. And I think just, just not being able to separate myself from initially just hearing about how good a hitter he was and, and how much the industry liked the bat uh, and not being able to fully update my view of the player with the new information that we got for really the entirety of his draft year um, probably held him too high up the rankings uh, than he should have been. So it's funny that literally the exact opposite can also be problematic there. Well, that's different. Well, it's just different in that it's you're, you're talking about information still within the season going on right like the well even like mostly preseason i would say like like that anchoring bias was started before the season is that what you mean yeah well all right yeah yeah i see what you're saying yeah it's it's tough to that the anchoring bias is definitely um definitely very real and can be hard to uh to overcome so i i very much agree with that that point 
All right. Um, Chris Stevens on Twitter says, it's hard to keep track of hundreds of minor league players every year. So I wonder which player did you see most of, either in video or in person, in 2022? And if you have to guess how many innings pitched or how many ABs of said player. Um, I don't know with any certainty who it would be, but I think for me in any given year, it's it's going to be a high school player given how much I'll see players on the showcase circuit and the amount of games that are condensed into smaller windows. Um, so I honestly think for me in 2022, it was probably Kevin McGonigal. He was at most of the big events that I was at. He's always hitting at the top of the lineup. So I got a ton of ABs of him. I saw a ton of video of him um, at even events that I, I didn't get at. I would imagine I've seen at least 60 plate appearances of him. Um, but these are such crude guesses. I haven't tracked it exactly um, but I think he, he probably stands out just scanning through the 2023 draft list, which for me, it would, it would definitely be a draft player, not a minor league player. Um, I would think it's Kevin McGonigal because I even think I've, I've probably seen more IBs of him than like Max Clark. They're mostly at the same events, but I don't think Max Clark, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think it was at East Coast Pro. Um, so yeah, probably Kevin McGonigal for me. How about you, Ben? I'm not sure because we have... <clears throat> I mean, there's live looks, and then there's so many video tools that we have at our disposal, too, to get so many full at-bats of players. Um, so I am pulling a lot of those up, too, yeah, to, to help, watch, looks for me. help watch players. So I don't know that I have uh, a good answer for, for that question. The year before, it might have been Cam Collier because I saw him in the show. This is probably multiple years. I saw him throughout the showcase circuit, and then he played in junior college, so he had a lot more video available. So I watched a ton of that. Then he also played in the Cape, so I saw a ton of that. Um, but that's that's not really your the heart of your question. That was spread over multiple years. I was going to say he probably also took more at bats than <laughs> anybody. He's just yeah, a he's a baseball best. rat. You can't yeah. peel him off the field. Yeah, and Tamar, Tamar Johnson is the same way, but I, I mm -hmm. didn't get to see nearly as much of his high school or his summer league um, than Collier just because of where they were playing. Um, okay, let's see. Bart on Twitter asks, who do you think will be the biggest riser in a farm system this season? Um, I've got a few examples of players who I'm excited about. Uh, I'll go through a few. I don't know, if Ben, if you have an immediate player that comes to mind, but... First, I, I started with the Braves system just, just because the system is, is so bad. So I think it's it's easier to move up a, a bad system than a good system, unless the good system is just has a lot of graduations that you're expecting. Um, but two players in the Braves system who are ranked in the back half are Ignacio Alvarez and Adam Meyer. I like Alvarez just because there aren't a lot of great hitters in the Braves system. He showed good contact ability and defensive traits in his pro debut. Um, the Braves internally are very high on him. He was another guy who was kind of under the radar coming into the draft. We didn't hear a lot from from non-Braves people about him prior to the draft that, that really were like, oh, we're really excited. So he was a bit of a surprise when the Braves did take him. Um, Braves have a pretty good track record, although I guess I did mention Stephen Paolini in this podcast as well. So it's not like it's a guarantee that he's going to pan out, but I like the defensive ability. He played third base and shortstop. I like the contact ability. Um, and if he can add some more power while continuing to show those skills over a full season, I could easily see him shooting up the Braves list. Adam Meyer is another one who's good. He was injured during the spring season, so he didn't get to pitch as much. I think he could have gone significantly higher in the draft than he did. He was an overslot signee, so he still got paid a decent amount. 
Um, but he's an intriguing player because he has good stuff. I like the secondaries. The fastball is like a ground ball kind of profile, uh, but the Braves do an excellent job with pitching development. Uh, and there are a couple guys in the system uh, that the Braves have who are either coming off injury um, or have been injured, and I think later this year should be pitching more that could move up. And Adam Myers, just the lowest-ranked guy of that profile, so I think he's got a lot of uh, leverage to move up or, or a lot of room to move up, I should say. Ben, do you have any? Yeah, uh, a lot of the guys we mentioned at the top of the show, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Um, Jason Churio, again, with the Guardians would be one. And I'll, I'll give you another Guardian, too. Uh, Angel Hanau, uh, switching shortstop with the Guardians, who was in the lower levels for them um, this year. Good, good baseball instincts, very high baseball IQ type player, pretty well-rounded uh, aside from power, which I think slash hope is something that uh, could develop later on for him. But um, he's somebody who, like we talked about, the, the Guardians have so much depth where in a lot of other organizations, these guys would already be probably in their top 15 prospects right now. I mean, maybe even top 10 in, in the uh, the aforementioned Atlanta Braves farm system if they were there. But oh, yeah. Um, there's, uh, there's just a lot of depth in the Guardians system right now, and I think they may get a little bit overlooked or just buried down the list as a result of just how much depth that, that organization has right now. So um, those are two guys where I could see them, um, you know, making, making a pretty significant jump up the list this year once they you know get to you know the full seat you know a bigger sample of a full season ball or, or just coming over to the uh to the states in in the case of uh jason churio that's a good one I, one that i'm kind of interested in and i think he has a chance to jump up a lot is judd fabian with the orioles and i think this is partially because there are a lot of players in that system who should graduate um and so so he should move up just because of that, if, if kind of the status quo remains with him. Um, but he maybe is even could continue to be a polarizing player because the tools are great. The athleticism is great. He's a really good defender in center field. The pro debut was strong. It was more contact than I think many people were expecting. But he also did a lot of his damage in his pro debut in rookie ball in low A, and then his eight-game stint in high A um, was a little bit more... He was a little bit more exposed, I guess you could say. So I'm curious if if the Orioles are able to help him find some more contact compared to what we saw in college, or if he just kind of beat up on lower level pitchers in his debut, again, it's a very small pro sample, just 22 games. So I almost don't know what to think of him because he was so tricky in college as a draft prospect, but the tools are legitimate. The Orioles have done a great job with hitting development. And if he has like an overall season, in an advanced full season league like he did in the 2022 debut i can't imagine he does anything but move up um although i'm still a little bit skeptical of of the pure hitting ability with fabian so he's an interesting one um another one that maybe i'm a little more excited about is michael Knorr with the astros uh kind of pairing another organization who has done a good job developing um this this profile player the astros pitching development has to be up with, with the tops in, in baseball at this point. He is a player who was drafted out of Coastal Carolina in the third round. He made a massive step forward in 2022 in terms of stuff. 
made a few tweaks to his arm action and his arm slot in college. Now has a fastball that was pretty regularly in the mid-90s, touching 98. Um, some good secondary stuff as well with a curveball and slider. Maybe a fringy changeup as well. Um, I think there's a chance that, that he starts and shows good control, but I'd, I'd want to see a little bit more extended proof of that. But pairing a guy like Knorr with Houston I think is exciting, and he would be a guy who's ranked towards the back of, of a top 30 that, that I think has a chance to move up and I'm excited about. Do you have any other ones, Ben? Yeah, I can give you one more. Uh, a pitcher, Luis Perales with the Red Sox, who I've probably been talking about for like four years. <laughs> now, I, if, I'm, if I remember right, I think we had him ranked as the number one international signing for a pitching prospect in in 2019 um even though he was not a high bonus signing he signed for less than a hundred thousand dollars and then between the pandemic and injuries he just hasn't been able to stay on the field or just get on the field much uh which has been unfortunate but the the stuff the stuff is really impressive man i mean he's up to 99 miles an hour just the the life the angle on that pitch is extremely impressive. I, I think it's just one of the better fastballs in all of the minor leagues. And I, I like his slider too. So I think he has the raw stuff to miss a lot of bats, but it it is concerning how few innings he has been able to pitch yet. Obviously some of that with the pandemic is out of his control, but uh, I think, I think the stuff is, is really, really exciting and if he's able to stay healthy, which is always a dangerous caveat to make, but uh, if he's able to stay healthy, I think he's somebody who could really rocket up the list for the Red Sox. Yeah, you don't often see a 40% whiff rate on a fastball. That's pretty impressive. More than 20 inches of induced vertical break. Like you said, a, a low attack angle as well. That's that's a really fascinating fastball. One, one I didn't know a ton of prior to this conversation, Ben, but... Just looking at it, it sounds legit. Yeah, I think I've been, everybody knows I've been like telling people about him for like a few years and then he just like can't get on the mound. And I'm like, no, no, like he's, he's real. Like he just, <laughs> he's got to stay on the mound. But I mean, that's such a big part of projecting teenage pitching prospects. So uh, hopefully he can just stay healthy. Yep, absolutely. We hope that for, for all the pitchers in the world, it's it's always tough when, when they get injured. We've already started to see a few of those going down on the uh, college front as we get into the college season. Ben, I'm, I'm traveling tomorrow for some real live college baseball this weekend, so I'm excited for that. But um, I think that's all we had to talk about on the podcast today. What do you need to plug or alert listeners to before we wrap up and get out of here? Yeah, well, we have yet another ranking up on our, our site the 2024 MLB draft rankings our top 100 is up there full scouting reports on all 100 players so um, obviously we're looking at 2023 and we're looking at 2024 at the same time and if you guys yeah just you know we like interacting with with you guys too so if yeah. you guys want 
I'm well, just if you, want, you, can, if, if you if you tweet a if, you know if you tweet a question to a future pro pod on Twitter, I will read it, and then I will, <laughs> uh, you know, we'll see it or just you know whatever you guys think about the show, what you guys liked about this episode, what you guys want to see us do differently, anything, any yeah, feedback if you have on any suggestions for what we should do in the future, any segments you want to see us do, any kind of different ideas for it. We're all ears. We want to make it as good as we possibly can. And, and to your point, Ben, we, we've tried to make sure we stayed healthy and we're actually on the field to do this podcast because it can't be a good podcast if you're not producing it. So making it more consistent this year. The season is about to start, but we're not going anywhere. Promise. Yeah. So we're, uh, you know, we're, we're excited for, for the year ahead. Yeah. So um, if you haven't rated and reviewed the show, please, please consider doing that. That definitely helps us a lot. But otherwise, thank you guys for listening. Uh, thank you for supporting Baseball America. If you are a subscriber or otherwise, if you, if you just like what we do, really thank you for that and appreciate it because um, BA subscribers, BA members are, are the reason we're able to do all of the stuff that we do here at Baseball America, um, and we're thrilled to be able to do that. So for Ben, I'm Carlos. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next time.